How are we all doing in this hot night? Savoring the silence? Good. So this evening I want to continue the journey that we've been on in working through these uh, qualities, these five inner strengths, powers, that can support awakening. So we were left last time after touching in with faith and effort, mindfulness, we were left with concentration, which is very much a theme that we're all working with on the retreat, the sense of being settled. And there were two flavors of concentration. One is the concentration that is sometimes likened to a a candle that is burning very brightly in a room without any wind at all. It's very bright and it's fragile. So if a wind blows, then it can be shaken easily or even go out. And I spoke of the boat, the analogy of our our path, being the practice uh, of moving from the shore where we experience uh, suffering and unnecessary suffering in relation to our experience, and then moving to the other shore, which is not another moment, but rather a different relationship to the moment where we're not clinging, pushing, pulling in relation to experience. And so we can swim across the, the body of water with our mindfulness. But if we build a boat, and that takes time, by calming and steadying our hearts and minds on an object, takes proper conditions, then perhaps we can uh, go across a little more smoothly. And perhaps we can bear some, some more waves, uh, some more unpredictable weather conditions. Of course, that's a metaphor for our minds and hearts. So we've been in the process of moving back and forth. So there's this samadhi, and then when that gets combined with the next of the factors, which I'll touch on more deeply in a moment, wisdom, then uh, the boat moves. So samadhi has this quality of, it can be fragile. It can be this quality of coming back and building like a vessel that we then move into a more open field of experience, like we're doing with breath awareness with. So it can be one-pointed, but it can also be, and this is what we can experience when we open the practice, it can be just have the quality of stability. So it actually has the function to stabilize our minds and hearts in a sustained way. So there are types of samadhi or concentration that are open as well. And when we open the field, you may start to touch these so that we're not necessarily coming back in a more, in an exclusive way to the breath, which could be a more, uh, that process that that entails, but breathing with, and still the quality of attention grows in a way that's steady. So there's a samadhi concentration that is more open and stability is, is its nature. 
There's another feature of concentration, or samadhi in this sense, of matured concentration, and in a way, right concentration, because we, as we explored, you can be focused in ways that are not oriented towards awakening, right? So we can have our boat and cruise around and come back to the same shore and have a nice pleasure trip and come back and be the same person we were. We're not oriented towards actually moving in a different direction other than what we know. We escape from habit patterns, but we don't really necessarily see into them and through them and into freedom. But when samadhi is, it's called samasamati, when it's right samadhi, when it's oriented, aligned with all the qualities that have preceded it in these factors, possibility of freedom moving into the unknown, the, the quality of effort that understands what to relinquish, what to hold on to, um, mindfulness that is waking up in the midst of the qualities of either selected objects, like working with the breath or more open field in the four foundations, that when it's matured samadhi and when it's oriented towards freedom, it has a wonderful quality of uh, cohesion, of bringing together the other qualities of mind and heart in a way that they stay together. So we can start to feel that in our practice. If there's sustained attention, if there's a stability of mind, then the other factors become more stabilized as well. The quality of our effort can become more stabilized, less shaky. What we're seeing can be seen in a way that is more sustained, for example. It's likened to uh, if you take dry soap and then you put water and you form lather, the water keeps, it keeps the cohesion in the soap, in the bubbles. So it's like that. It, it, holds the, it bonds the elements that move us in the direction of awakening together. So it's very, very important in this way when it's matured. And then it moves into, well, what are we here for? Freedom, wisdom, panya, suffering in the inner reactive sense and the end of that, moving from one shore to the other. An analogy, just to review, and it's not a review because we deal with it all the time in our practice, moment by moment, is suffering is when we're caught by the binds of the pushing and pulling, the wanting and not wanting mind, the clinging mind. So I remember actually about uh, maybe 20 years ago, I was doing a three-month retreat here, and I heard this, uh, I heard this teaching, which I just remembered before the talk, and it's a wonderful one. It's an old teaching of, uh, uh, it's actually how they catch monkeys often. I, mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't like the image, but it's very effective. <laughs> Images of suffering aren't always so nice. So hunters, when they're hunting monkeys, because I guess they eat them in certain places, okay, uh, they'll put a, a banana or something in a box with a small hole in it. And the hole is just so big that the monkey can get its hand in. It's like when it's extended with the fingers out. But then uh, when, it, when it makes a fist around the banana or whatever fruit is in there, whatever is in there is fruit bait, and it tries to hold on, it can't pull them out. It can't pull it out. So the way they actually catch the monkey is that they, have, that they, they put their hand in. So that's wanting mind. Wanting. And then it grabs on. And there's so much clinging that even when they see danger coming and they're averse to it, they don't let go. And so they get captured. So maybe these aren't going to be killed. Maybe they're uh, 
for circus monkeys. Okay, it's a little nicer, a little humane, humane way to work with the story. But they get caught, and we get caught. And often, if we go for something and then we want to release, or we're trying to push something away, it's the clinging energy that makes it even stronger. So the opposite of this, from the poem that Larry read earlier, uh, Genjin Rinpoche, The Other Shore, as soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. So the monkey gets free if they know how to let go. Our minds... And these are, these are images of the free mind, images of infinite space, the opposite of clinging, right? The opposite of constriction, which is how we experience suffering. Open, inviting, and comfortable. Well, if you're the monkey, you're just happy to be out of the, out of the range of the hunter. So maybe for us, the freedom is in littler ways. We're just free of something in a little way. Maybe it's not this great spaciousness. But that's the fundamental movement of the practice of crossing the shore. And letting go is the mechanism. As I said, mentioned before Ajahn Chah, the great uh, Thai master said, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go fully, you get full peace. So how do we let go? Wisdom arises from vipassana, which is what we practice in the second phase of our, our practice here with the using breath as an anchor, opening it up to investigate. And in a, the most simple way, most clear way, uh, just to be with life exactly as it is. Very simple. But when we see life exactly as it is, in a way where that these factors are balanced, where there's sustained energy to look into it, to look into experience, and we keep coming back mindfully, and concentration is more balanced, then we see into things where we actually make the movement of releasing, of letting go. It happens because the conditions are there. And there's different ways. There are different... Uh, ways that we can, we can move in. There are what are called characteristics of experience that they're, they're classical in, in the Buddhist teachings, but they're very practical in terms of what we, how we often enter into letting go, release, bits of freedom, however they surface. So the first of the, the ways that we've been focusing on and it's primary, primary in just, if we look into the way that life is, it's impermanence. So we see into the changing nature of experience again and again and again. Why? Because that's actually the way that it is. And I want to read from, um, from the sutta. And Larry had mentioned there were these 16 steps in the Anapanasati sutta. Uh, and then he did the condensed method, which is the, the, uh, just working with the breath and then opening it to all the fields of of, of possible experience in the, in the immediacy of our senses, inner and outer, 
So uh, body, feeling tone, uh, mind stuff, emotions, etc., and, and change. And so the fourth of the, what he called the tetrads is, uh, is very simple. And it focuses in a very clear and exquisite way on the process of impermanence and how it actually moves into letting go. And it's a moment-by-moment experience. So the Buddha said one trains oneself, focusing on impermanence, I breathe in. Focusing on impermanence, I breathe out. That's actually the 13th, so it's 13 through 16. The next one is focusing on fading away, I breathe in. Focusing on fading away, I breathe out. Focusing on cessation is the next one. Breathing in, breathing out. And the final one is focusing on relinquishment. I breathe in. Focusing on relinquishment, I breathe out. So this is a natural expression of life displaying itself. When we actually can be with experience all the way through, it's full expression of life. And this is on the breath. So it's impermanence, right? So we just see it's, so impermanence is the cycle. It moves, it fades away, it ends. And what is with that? Letting go. So this is important for our practice if we're doing breath awareness, because and this has come up in some of the groups. Uh, people say, do I have to open it up? Do I ha- can I only get wisdom if I start opening it up and looking at everything, running after this thought or that or this sound? And uh, no, (laughs) you could stay with the breath. And as long as the the mind orients itself, it sees, and it's quite natural. It sees the actual fullness of impermanence and display. Letting go can happen right there. When wisdom, when vipassana, special seeing, it's the seeing that liberates the clinging of the heart and the mind can happen. So if we're serious about our meditation, and I hope we're serious in a light way, of course, (laughs) then we don't have to go anywhere else. But then again, we certainly can. And that's the fullness of the practice now, as, as we've opened it, is that we can wake up wherever we are. And the stability, the continuity of attention that comes, the stability of mind, of awareness, this sense of, companionship that we often touch and can retouch, this kind of inner befriending that we can get from the breath when we gently and steadily come back, the breath and the body again and again, that that quality can mature, can be a good friend, (laughs) can be a heartfelt companion, and that that can lead us into many different situations. And we have the stability of that accompanying companionship that helps us get through a lot that we couldn't otherwise. So, when we open it up, it can, we, can, we can experience impermanence anywhere in any sense store, and the mind and the heart as well. So I remember one retreat I did here quite a while ago, and often it comes when we loosen our grip. It's actually an attitudinal piece too. We try hard, and then we're just in a balanced state, and uh, we may even forget about the practice, and then the factors are there, and then phew, we just see in a way. So I just remember sitting out, I was walking today, I remember I was sitting out on this stone, uh, out on the stones a long time ago. And I just sitting there, just not 
focusing particularly hard, and I heard a, a car go by. It's just very mundane. We hear them all the time, right? And my mind just, it just tuned into this quality. It, didn't, it wasn't trying. It just did. It just stayed with the sound, and it was intimate with it all the way through to the end. And then there was just a depth of silence and opening that was uh, quite, quite beautiful and, un, un, and unexpected. And so if we reflect on our own experience, this can happen for us in little ways or big ways. Impermanence, the flow of experience, naturalness. Expressing itself, being known. And when we relinquish our grasping, not looking for what's next, sometimes we taste bits of freedom. So that's one door, and it's, it's, it's really it's the, it's the core way in that we're, we're working with. So sometimes the road with impermanence is a lot more rocky. So this, in some systems, you work with impermanence, and actually it can, things can rise and pass very quickly, like, like bubbling very quickly. Uh, and then this other quality of mind and heart opens up. Uh, so it can be subtle. The mind can get more refined and subtle, quiet, and it comes out of it. There's another way that we can experience uh, freedom, which is a lot more true to most of our experience, to, to a lot of our struggles, if we have a hard time on retreat. And that's by looking into the character, look, seeing, uh, into when suffering is there. The second of the characters is dukkha. When we see suffering... And we have a balance of mind and heart. And it can be physical suffering. It can be sensations in the body with unpleasant resistance. It can be emotions. It can be a whole cluster. And they build. And uh, some of, for some of us this week, they were not Larry and I, because we went up to our little palaces with air conditioning some of the time. We got a little break. <laughs> and we came down from on high and then gave you the teachings. We're kidding early, like we're the Brahmins now. We're not. Poor Jim's down here doing all the hard work with you all. <laughs> so I'm coming down from on high. Yes, I was up in the air conditioning room, <laughs> getting ready for the talk. So I'm not speaking from where I, to what I talk right now, and you probably have. That can be, is the heat a deep level? Of, did it cause some extra suffering for some people? Now, heat or motion or a combination just being, against, being put against the wall in a way. And we can escape. And there's a lot of, more than one person said, I was ready to pack my bags and get out of here. <laughs> but they told me in the group. So that means they're still here. <laughs> so they stayed. And so if we can have enough balance, and, and this often comes through faith, and we don't even know why we're doing it, but we stay. And then we worked often with a relaxed quality of effort, but with perseverance. And the commitment, the devotion turns into a landing on exactly what's here, mindfulness. And sometimes we can't be very refined in our practice, right? We can't systematically stay with the breath and then open it up. It's just sometimes that works and sometimes we're just here. But we stay and we come back. And that's our commitment and we keep doing it. And it starts to take on a form where it does itself. 
So then the stability of mind, even though it's in the face of tough suffering, it's, it's here. We stay here. We get spun out and we come back. And when that energy matures, uh, sometimes what happens? The same exact process happens. It breaks. It builds. It's like a weather system. The tension builds up. It builds up. And then the conditions change. They're not in our control. They change. And then there's relief. So that's the gateway of dukkha. We see the suffering and we actually, it, it's the gateway through clinging because we often see how much we're clinging. And we see the struggle with that. But when the mind becomes balanced, sometimes we stay with it and it opens. And sometimes those are the most useful insights, especially for daily life. Because it can teach us in any situation when difficult stuff is arising to learn to come back, to just have that commitment, okay, I'm here. So that's the gateway of, of suffering. And the last, and they're all inter, you can obviously see how they're interconnected. The last is, uh, traditionally it's called anatta, or, or, or the doorway of not <coughs> clinging to any fixed notion of itself, no center. And so it's the actual expression of freedom. Because that's when, when we let go, when letting go happens, uh, then what's there? Are we there? Is that tight grist, that tight fist of grasp? It's not, there's no longer grasping. So spaciousness. So when we feel that actually in our being, as it were, then that's liberation. And one way to look at it because our practice, our lives, are so self-referential. And that's what, when we're putting labels on things, comparing constantly, good sit, bad sit, better than, worse than, I can't do this, I'm great, etc., etc. It's the mind imposing an identity on experience. And for the sake of inner freedom, it doesn't work so well. So I... This notion of I, this notion of me and mine. So one of my favorite books on this teaching is uh, by a man named Ajahn Buddhadasa. It's called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. And it speaks of emptiness. It speaks of this quality of, of no self. So how do we cling to, to uh, I, me, and mine? Well, mine, it's pretty simple. We can see it coming up. Uh, we're not dealing with so many objects that we officially own here, but we can get attached to, uh, did anyone get attached to your seat this week? Nobody? Did anybody, was, did anybody not follow the rules and kind of sit in someone else's seat? Uh, not for you, but did anyone get their seat satin in? <laughs> and I've done retreats and I, I, I sort of took two spaces, like, and then we give the announcement in the hall, I've had them hurt and they have to give one space up, but then you're still attached to it. And then when someone's sitting there, <clears throat> that's my seat. Or you go into the dining hall. Anyone have a favorite place to sit in the dining hall? You're used to sitting in a certain area? Or maybe not. Maybe you're not one of those people that goes in 20 minutes early to get your, put your cup down and your, your little seat. Okay. Because we want to make home, and that's good. That's, that's fine, because it, we're, we're, it's normal because we're trying to create comfort. Right? But our comfort often comes with this identification with mine. And so we take it in our cars and everything else, clothes, right? I've worked for 
20 years to get the perfect balance of being a, like the, the, the nice yogi teacher kind of like image. And I guess it didn't work, huh? <laughs> it's my image. <laughs> so the second one is my, right? It's mine, objects, and it's my. We identify with ourselves in a certain way. We identify with who we are. And again, it's usually relative to others, and it's relative to what we have and don't have. It's relative to our expectations. We're really deeply bound by our conditioning. It's cultural. It's, 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 it's built in our DNA in a, cer in a certain way of, of attachment for survival. But then it gets expressed through this formation of me. And if you look at yourself, there's a, a teaching of looking at a, a, uh, an elephant, and all these uh, blind men came up and felt the elephant. And, they all, and then they said, what is the elephant? And they all described a different part of the element. And uh, everybody thought the element was what they thought it was. And they argued about it. And they were all wrong. So we identify with individual parts of our experience as being me when they're elements of experience. And it's very hard for us to see the whole. So we get more perspective. So what is I? That, well, the last one, I. Clinging, often we, uh, you know, we think much and we, we identify with thinking. We think we have a power in this. That just that we think things through. We, there's such a cling to that. And when we come on retreat, we see that. And even though we struggle with it, if we're really honest, there's a satisfaction in knowing we can rest in the fact that we're thinking through things. We're using our mind to create some sense of here I am, and there you are, <laughs> and therein lies the problem. <laughs> so I, me, and mine. And you, we can have, and have I as, as consciousness. We can say I am, we can get attached to certain states, certain, certain states of consciousness. And that's a problem with experience, any experience in meditation. Because if it's more subtle, if it seems more enduring, then often we, we hold on to it. But none of it, none of these things, because they, because they show their impermanence, they don't, they're not enduring. They're not us. So when we experience, when we actually experience fully, through the senses in a moment, a unity of concentration and wisdom in relation to anything, then the sense, if we're really oriented, the sense of separation, the sense of I, me, or my, it dissolves. And there's, at least for a moment, there's, there's a kind of radical, there's intimacy with experience. So we can't locate ourselves anywhere, something that's fixed. So the, the Bahia Sutta, one of my, I gave talks on this before here, uh, quintessential teaching. The Buddha gives a teaching to someone who has, he has, doesn't have long to live and he knows it. He's sensitive to that fact and he really has a lot, of, uh, a lot of natural energy for practice. And he says to the Buddha, you know, Give me a teaching. And the Buddha says, okay, I'll give you a, a pith teaching. He says, in the scene, there will be only the scene. So this is very applicable when we open it up. Now, we're accompanying this with the breath in terms of the practice of anapanasati. But the essence 
is the clear connection with experience, raw and naked. In the seen, there's only the seen. In the heard, only the heard. In the cognized, only the cognized. So here we're not even focusing on impermanence in any particular way. It's just full care and attention. When there's only the, when there's only the seeing, hearing, cognizing, then there is no you there. So there's no, you, there's no sense of identification in the object. There's no my or other. There's no you there. There is no you here. So there's no self-referencing going on. And there's no you in between. And he says, this, just this is the end of suffering. An old Chinese uh, teaching. There was the mountain in me, and then only the mountain remained. So some of people have reported the sense that they're being breathed. The body's breathing itself. Right? When these factors are balanced, when effort is, when there's relaxation, steadiness, real connectedness, sometimes it feels as if experience is happening on its own. When that happens, what is there? Is there anyone home? Or is there just a moment when we get, it's like we get out of the way. I often think of practice, at least in my own experiences, I really can't do it, but I somehow practice still unfolds despite me. So we succeed in terms of actually having moments of real opening and release despite ourselves. <laughs> and yet we have to try. So there are also beautiful ways to describe emptiness. So one way is this is through form, right? We're going through the objects of experience to move beyond them. And that's, what, that's why this practice is, in a way, it's, it's, uh, it's very kind of relentless, but it's also extremely honest and simple because it's asking us to be with our experience as it is. It's not asking us to fabricate, right, to, to say we're free, to imagine a state of freedom. It's saying, okay, so that's what the Buddha was saying. Be with the scene, just the scene, just exactly what life is. And that if you do that in a way that's, balance and sustains with interest, clarity. Something, something can up, really open up. And the other side, the expressions of freedom, and there's a, the historical Buddha was very uh, careful about the language. He didn't describe it much because it's very easy to get caught in descriptions. And then get, and we, when we read Dharma books, we often do. And I, lo- I, like, I love the descriptions of uh, the cognizing power of emptiness. Oh, I mean, you're empty space. And, and they're beautiful analogies. They can give us hints at the possibility. Like, it's like the space. The, the heart and the mind have this potential for space that is unbound. Even hearing them can incline us towards that, towards that, that, that possibility. And, and it can move us towards energy. So it can be skillful. Uh, but if we describe it, it's not the thing. And so when we touch these states, there's, it's a sense of letting go, of freedom. And there can, be, there can be incredible qualities that come out of this naturally, the clear seeing. When shamatha vipassana, or concentration and wisdom, so samadhi pani, when they work together, it's a unified practice. 
So that's the, actually the practice of Anapanasati as we're doing it. Then it's, I don't know how many, how, how many times we actually get it, but it's, that, it's the quality when these, these qualities are unified. They're together. Then emptiness can arise. And then we have a special experience. And of, so I can't, don't want to try and name it. But we know what freedom is. We taste it. So we have openings. We've had plenty, people have reported plenty of openings. Okay? So let's not describe them as this or that, but uh, Buddha Dasa said you can have little openings, and they're, they're, real, they're called little nibbanas, going out of a flame of this mind that is not balanced, this mind that actually sees and opens. And there can be big nibbanas going out of the flame of the pushing, the wanting, not wanting, deluded mind. But we don't have to characterize them. We can taste it. It's for ourselves. That's what these characters all work together to tasting it for ourselves. So now we're towards the end of the retreat. And maybe we've, we've worked with all these things. Maybe we've had some openings. Maybe not. Okay? But we've worked with these qualities. And these are considered, uh, when they're balanced, they're strengths. And if we can learn to recognize them, then they can create a sense of inner, it's a non-egoistic dignity in a way, because we walk with them. And when there's freedom, what's the expression of freedom? Well, when you climb, in some mountains, when you climb, they say only, uh, let's see, leave only footprints, take only memories. So here, when we leave the retreat, all we're going to take with us is memories, right? Yes? I don't know. Some might, people might leave some things behind. <laughs> but in our practice, when our mind is actually balanced, they're footprints. So there's images of the footprints of the Buddha. They leave a mark. But the ego is not there. So it's said that in our actions, compassion and wisdom, wisdom, compassion is the natural fruit of the heart and mind that is open, that is not clinging. And it said, so the natural responsiveness of emptiness, that it actually responds, it can, it can be a quality of wisdom, that it naturally responds. So those are the footprints, in a way, of freedom. But there's nobody there. But we do take our memories, don't we? And so we have our experiences, and then we struggle with them. <laughs> so we have to re... So we have, first of all, uh, in terms of the path of these practices, when we taste freedom, what does that do? Well, it's, in a way, it's linear. We've taught, there's been a linear way where we've, we've, worked, through, uh, we've worked through the qualities of, uh, of faith, of effort, of mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And then, there's a, so there's a path that they purify each other and they work in a certain direction. And this is from uh, Utejaniya, a, a Burmese uh, monk, who uh, is very, very lovely teachings. Only when there is faith or confidence, effort will arise. Only when there is effort, mindfulness will become continuous. Only when mindfulness is continuous, stability of mind will become established. Only when stability of mind is established, samadhi, you will start understanding things as they are. When you start understanding things as they are, wisdom as they are, panya, faith will grow stronger. 
So we started the journey by talking of faith as bright faith, as energy that moves us into the possibility of freedom in the moment. But it's bright. And verified is when we actually taste the fruits of practice. And sometimes on retreats, they can be very clear and we can know them now. Sometimes they're, they're like nascent and we don't really taste them. We, sometimes people struggle very hard. I've had this experience plenty of times. You don't feel like the retreat's really giving you much and you go home. And then something changes in your daily life. You didn't know how it worked, but something changed. One of the students at the, the center where I, I, uh, I teach quite a bit, it's, it's uh, the Newburyport Insight Meditation Center, uh, one of the students came to me and said, I, I don't know if my practice is working. And he'd been at it for quite a while. And I, I kind of knew him, so it seemed like his practice was going fine. And I said, oh, okay, well, uh, hmm, how, how do I test him, right? How is it, is it verified or not? <laughs> I said, what, uh, what does your wife think? <laughs> he said, oh, it's a good case, right? So he said, oh, my wife, oh, oh, I have a problem with anger, and it's gone down a lot. <laughs> so she's really happy that I'm practicing. I don't get angry at her very much anymore. And I said to him, well, are you getting angry at her and just suppressing it, or are you not getting angry at her? He said, no, I'm not getting angry at her. It's just not, it's just not there that much. It doesn't come up that much. And, and I said, and when it does, oh, it's softer. I can see it more clearly most of the time. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so that's, that's the verification of practice. And so it can come in experiences here. It can come at home. It can be a subtle relationship shift to thought. Sometimes we think that wisdom means there's no thought, and it can be that. There can be these big openings where there's really no thought and there's great peace. It can also be just a different relationship with thought so that we're a little more compassionate instead of quite so clinging and, as Larry was saying, compulsive with our thinking, and our thinking and image and emotional loops. Uh, sometimes we have, if we stay with the practice, sometimes we have little insights on practice. We have little things like that are in daily life and they come in the form of thoughts. And we can spin out, oh, I got to do that. That tells me this and I got this understanding and then we're gone, right? <laughs> so the practice is always, you come back, keep trusting the moment, keep trusting dropping into the moment in a balanced, steady, open way. But if we do that enough and we actually trust the process and sometimes, like I was walking the loop and I had an image of this, we have a big TV screen, got it about six months ago. It was a, I got it as a gift for us. And I looked at, and I just had this image walking the loop and I was like, I had an image and there was a little like tension in my relationship. I don't watch that much TV, but uh, I do sometimes when I don't think I need to. After I teach, I try to, you know, zone out sometimes. We all have things like that. But there was a little nascent just feeling that would change my relationship to that TV. And then I started to think that means I guess I'll make the intention up. And I stopped. I start, I just saw the mind. I was like, no, just drop back in to that place of balance, that place of where there's some stillness and some openness. Okay? And that's, a, that's an expression of wisdom where the heart actually touches a bit more spaciousness in relationship to experience and then trusting that rather than needing to add the mind onto it and figure it out going back into old mind. So these are sometimes the fruits of practice. And that doesn't mean we won't think about it. 
But often we plant seeds now and they, they're, they're small and they, they sprout up and they, they grow in ways we don't even know and realize until later. And sometimes you might find that practice is, I won't go too much into this because Larry's given the going home talk, <laughs> that practice, uh, it's, this might not be the right practice for you. And that you've tested it, you really stayed with it and you realize that your mind's just a mess. <laughs> and that you're angry at everybody and yourself and you're identifying. How many people aren't here? I can't tell. <laughs> uh, and, and that might be a call that, okay, I would say don't, you know, don't, give up your pra- don't give up the search for freedom, but maybe this isn't the right form. So that's good too. So when faith is not verified, when you stay with it long enough, then good. Then use that. It's a scientific, we're doing a study here, a study of ourselves. How can we meet the moment? Does that change the quality of our life? Okay. Uh, but there's a quality, when we balance all there's a quality of moving in a way into the, and, and there's, so this is five things that we're working with, right? Five, throw them out now. Uh, in the way that, well, there's progressive, and actually don't throw them out quite yet. They also need to work in a way that balances them. Uh, so they can, when they're balanced, it's good, but you might, this is practice tips here. So sometimes they're not balanced. And when they're not balanced, there was a, a movie I saw a while ago by a Baron von someone, I don't remember, who was in the Ottoman Empire and these, uh, his village got attacked and taken over. And then it was a mythical journey. So he had to go out and find five, he found five very powerful friends that all had special powers. One could run really fast, one could fly, one could shoot the bow well, I forget all the qualities. One was super strong. And he went out and it was a journey of gathering them all. And then he came back to retake the village. And they worked together as a team, but they were, some of them were little ruffians. So they had to balance each other out. So you see that like in a sport, you see how teams, they balance each other, their strengths and weaknesses, they have to play well together. So sometimes the factors aren't balanced. So we can have, when we have too much faith, it can be bright faith and it can be unwise. So wisdom is the balancing factor when we're looking, when, when these are actually, we're actually working with these factors. Wisdom is the balancing factor for uh, faith. Now, it's interesting because we can, some people have a lot of wisdom. It's not completely transformative, but it's a critical kind of, they see through things. They have a good BS meter. And that kind of wisdom Sometimes that actually leads to a lot of aversion and suffering that's unnecessary. So it's said that when you have too much of that, not the transformative, balanced, opening kind of wisdom, but there's, there's wisdom in it, that that needs to be balanced by faith. Again, which is the heart energy, right? Which is the opening, the surrendering energy. So the second of the factors is effort. And when we try too hard, then we can get jagged. Our energy can get jagged. And so the antidote for jaggedness is concentration, which has the flavor of calm. And when there's too much calmness, did anybody get calm and calm but sleepy with the uh, heat? So there might just be calm and aversion, <laughs> but there could also be calm and sleepiness. So that's a factor of calm. And it's actually, it's interesting because you can wake up there and realize, oh, I can be mindful of this thing which I thought I, wasn't acceptable and we can actually, that can actually be a vehicle for more calm. 
conditions that we're, we don't think are, that are not in our control, we think they should be different sometimes if we're fresh, they actually turn out to be very good conditions for awakening. But if there's too much calm in our practice, which can come from concentration, the mind can sink. It's called sinking mind. And the antidote for that, the balance for that, is more effort and energy, more precision in how we practice. Now, in the midst of these is mindfulness, which said you cannot have too much of, which is simple and is just landing, in the, is remembering to come back and to land right in the midst of where we are, whether it's chosen or whether it's more inclusive coming to us that we can't have too much because it balances all the other factors naturally. And so that's, now we get back to throwing it out. <laughs> and uh, I'll end with this, uh, this last bit. We moved, it's a movement towards, towards wholeness, towards simplicity. That's the movement of the practice. We have to work in a way where we're intelligent. It's, it is a skill set. It's learning a new art. It's an attentional art. How can, the land, how can the mind learn to land and sustain itself in the midst of experience without buying in to the energies of wanting, not wanting, and being clouded? How can it do that? It's a journey. And the, to go back to the first image we started with, the Buddha, when he was enlightened, the night of his enlightenment, that's what he, the forces, they came, but he was not shaken. He didn't deny the forces. We're not, we're allowing things to come when the mind is steady. And his witness was the earth. Just like the witness to our practice is our daily life. It's the daily life on the retreat. It's the daily life in sitting, which is also daily life. And it's our daily life when we leave here. But it's the utter simplicity of touching the moment fully. So I think I'll end with that. I said that last talk, and then I went on, and on, and on. <laughs> so I'll only go on a little, because <laughs> I'm a trickster. <laughs> OK. The Tao is in all things, in their divisions, and in their fullness. This is from Chuang Tzu. Was, uh, I think it was the disciple of Lao Tzu or in that lineage. What I dislike about divisions is that they multiply. And what I dislike about multiplication is that it makes people want to hold fast to it. So people go out and forget to return, seeing little more than ghosts. I'll repeat it. So the Tao is in all things, in their divisions and in their fullness. So that's saying freedom is in each moment. In, it's in the pieces that we think are split off and are no good, and that we have to struggle with, as well as in what we consider whole and balanced. What I dislike about divisions is that they multiply. So what happens when we get caught and we go out with our mind? Hot, too hot, blame, etc. Good, bad. They multiply 
And what I dislike about multiplication is that it makes people want to hold fast to it. We cling. We grip that sense of mm, me versus. So people go out and forget to return. And the cost is seeing little more than ghosts. So we're seeing life through veils. We're seeing life through yesterday's eyes, through tomorrow's projections. And we pay a price. We forget to return. So these qualities are inviting us, like these qualities in the story of all the, the, these factors, these qualities of mind and heart. They come back and then we reclaim the village of our own heart, our own mind, which fundamentally is an open space. It's empty. It's full of life. That's, it's right in here. It's this moment of freedom. So we can touch this by returning the utter, to the utter simplicity of now. So Basho, old pond, frog jumps in. Splash. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.